0: Hey everyone, welcome to episode 111 of the Time for Teachership podcast. Today, we get to hear from Dr. PJ Kaposi, who is the Illinois State Superintendent of the Year and a finalist for the National Superintendent of the Year through the American Association of School Administrators. PJ is a best selling author, dynamic speaker, and a transformational leader and educator with an incredible track record of success. Let me tell you, this conversation went in a direction that I typically don't go. We went a little off script with the different questions that we had, but we hit all of the same themes, and it was a joy to go down that rabbit hole. So I can't wait for you to hear from Dr. Capozzi. Here we go. I'm educational justice coach, Lindsay Lyons, and here on the Time for Teachership podcast, we learn how to inspire educational innovation for racial and gender justice, design curricula grounded in student voice, and build capacity for shared leadership. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach. I'm striving to live a life full of learning, running, baking, traveling, and parenting because we can be rockstar educators and be full human beings. If you're a principal, assistant superintendent, curriculum director, instructional coach, or teacher who enjoys nerding out about co created curriculum with students, I made this show for you. Here we go. PJ, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being on the Time for Teachership podcast today.
1: I am very excited for, to be here. Thanks, Lindsay.
0: Yeah, of course. And and you are here through sickness and all of it. So it's dedication right there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like everyone's been fighting that battle for the last 30 months or whatever it is. So um, it's okay to play here once in a while.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so today, I, I think we're going to get into some really cool conversations. And at the front end of this episode, I will have just read all of your like professional bio stuff. Is there anything that you want to say beyond the professional bio or anything that you want to contextualize today's conversation, anything that's on your mind or things that will frame our our talk today?
1: It's interesting because like one of the best and worst things about having a bio is that people read it, particularly before you speak. And then it feels really weird getting on stage after you hear someone like essentially give you like living eulogy before you get on on a stage. So I don't know, I, I think the context for any of that is just that, um, my primary job and the thing that I value the most is still doing the work, right? So a lot of times people get into the speaker, consultant, write, author um, world, and then that becomes their world. And I love that space. And uh, that's not to diminish anyone that's in it, um, but I'm still in the the grind with the rest of the educators in the in the country trying to to make things better. So um, that's the one thing is that I just try to remind people, because a lot of times people are like, oh, well, you wrote all these books, you talk all over, and um I'm, I'm still in it um, the same way that we, we all are.
0: Yeah. That's a wonderful uh, context for this conversation too, because I think it's, it's helpful to be both out of it and in it at the same time to be able to like see all the things. Yes. So you bring some really unique perspectives to this conversation. So I'm excited. We'll dive right in. I always start with Dr. Messina loves quote about freedom dreaming. And she talks about it like dreams grounded in the critique of injustice, which I love as a framing. So like, we can dream all these dreams, but we ground them in the critique of injustice there. It gives a little bit of bite to like the dreams that we have for education. And so I'm curious to know what your dream is in that context, when we're thinking about critiquing injustice for like designing curriculum instruction, leading, leading people to do that work um, that advances justice in the classroom.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd say one step kind of be before the the design of instruction is the design and functionality in, of school, right? I mean, so if we, if we even take it one step further and think about the purpose, is our purpose to design a system that absolutely best serves kids and gets them ready for um, to be you know, critical thinkers and contributors to uh, ever-changing society and democracy? Or are we designing schools to A, be a service to society and the community and to support parents And to prepare kids for the best that we can for their tomorrow given the confines of that as society continues to change kind of logarithmically or exponentially we're changing on a linear scale. And like I do think schools are changing quicker than they've ever changed so like kudos to us, but like still not close to where society is changing. And so, um, I think you have to answer that question first before you can get into what it is because you could argue that it's an injustice that schools are designed as a mechanism to allow society to run smoother as opposed to in order to maximize the actual critical thinking ability to um, curate information, analyze it, connect, um, synthesize it, and then communicate it to others, right? Because if we were just doing that, it would look different. Um, so like you hear arguments about the four-day work week, you hear arguments about, well, schools should start later because all the science, especially at the high school level, support that. All of that's great, but when we are a function of society funded by taxpayers that like essentially become, and I'm, I don't mean this disparaging at all, but like a function of what we do is childcare. So parents can work and then, so they can contribute to society. So I think there's like peeling that apart. I think you can get to it at the really macro level or you can get to the really micro level. Um, and I'm happy to get into both or go further, but that's, that's just where my re- reaction is when, when you bring up that question.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. So many things. Because I, I absolutely. I I mean, I. We were just talking before we hit record. Like I have a parent of a very young child, and like that childcare is so expensive. We as a as a society do not value childcare workers. We do not value education as separate from childcare because we don't fund childcare systemically for everyone. Um, And oh my god, we could go down. We could go down that path for a long time. But I think that's such an interesting point about like what we want school to be. And and I, for me, I see this idea of school being this opportunity to better society in ways, right? Where we have students as like change agents, we offer them opportunities to be change agents to make it so that society isn't treating education as childcare or, you know, whatever the, the issue is. So I'm curious to know like how how that conversation that we're having that maybe adults have, right? About like w- what school could be or what do we want the purpose of schooling to be? Like, how does that translate into like conversations with students about what school can be or, or does it? Does that make sense? I think,
1: it, I think it does in terms of trying to figure out how do we offer courses and how do we design things for that, right? So um, like where I live, I give this example frequently. Is like, we have a state-of-the-art welding lab in our school because that's what is very employable in our region right? So if I were designing a school, would I have the state-of-the-art thing in our building be welding? Well, maybe, maybe not, but it is because we have, you know, students that are leaving the day after graduation making more than the teacher teaching them how to weld um, immediately. So like then it becomes, okay, is school designed to create employees? Or a school designed to create people that are going to improve society and, and help us think differently? Or is it the same thing? Can we do both or can we not? And if, we, if we're, we're focused on not doing both, then essentially we're getting to in a much more European model, right? Like where we're kind of tracking kids and going into different places. And if we're designed on like everyone has to become this critical thinker that's creating, then we might be doing a disservice to other kids, right? So it's very interesting because if you asked me that 10 years ago, I would have had much less pragmatic thoughts about it. I'd have had much more idealistic thoughts. But as I've gotten in and understood like, hey, you know, the kid that's leaving here and making $87,000 at 18 and has incredible work ethic and is going to support his family forever and not move and be a contributor to this community forever, being in small rural, that's a really awesome thing. Like we've done a really nice job by that kid. Um, Now, does that mean that that kid is going to change the world in some way? Like maybe because maybe the fact that he is going to raise a great kid, that kid might, right? Like, so you just don't know. Um, Whereas I would have told you 10 years ago, like I would have thought much more in platitudes of like, we all have to do this for all kids. I just don't think that that necessarily is true. So it's this very weird dynamic of trying to figure out what is pragmatic in terms of what we can actually do versus how do we not lose the idealism which is necessary for leaders to have to encompass a vision and to create a why for people to stretch and try harder
0: oh my gosh I want to go like completely off script <laughs> what I had planned to ask you because this is such an interesting like conversation I'm curious to know a couple things one I'm wondering how conversations with individual students can shape like that decision you know what I mean like does it have to be that Teachers decide one way or the other? Or like you were saying, like, can it be both? And like, can it be both for specific students in different ways? And like, how do we involve students in that conversation of what they want and what they would benefit from? Like, do they want to just go get the job? And also, can they go get the job and then also be a part of their community, like without being like a civil rights leader or something as like their job title? Can they participate civically, you know, in in? local elections or, um, changing like a small law in their local community or something. Right. So I'm curious to know, like the specific student experience, like how that's brought to light in some of the decisions about what courses you offer or things like that. What do you think? Yeah.
1: So I think it's like, there's three elements to that. One, I would just to say the one, like the aspect of, cause when I first became a principal that I was 27 and very idealistic, like I was college for all, like that was my mentality. I remember really struggling because I knew some kids weren't going to get there, and now I see some of those kids like that live in the biggest houses in our communities and are, are getting ready to serve on the local school boards. And so they're doing exactly kind of what you're talking about. They're they're incredible community contributors. They're great, you know, uh, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, and all of those things are happening without you know having to be college for all. So I think that it certainly can happen in in different realms and avenues. I would say for me the most. Um, influential thing, and this just started over the last couple of years, kind of started with COVID, is I do a senior exit interview with every graduate that we have in the district, um, where they tell me what's good, what's bad, what's not. And so some of it is, again, like incredibly poignant and deep, and then some of it is like, we need bigger portions at lunch, which is also like like meaningful, right? So like we've replaced every water fountain in the last year because they told us our water was terrible and I didn't really realize our water was terrible because I drink out of a different one, right? Like Um, So some of those things have been like very practical, but then others, you know, were um, in some cases misguided and there's a lot of assumptions that took place for instance like, well we fund football at like this level that we don't fund other things like we don't really fund football self sustaining, um, other than like helmets right like so like, and and so helping to explain and dispel some of those things were really good, but then some of the cases were like well why don't we have this, Um, and for us in small rural like those choices as to what we offer are painstaking because we can't offer everything, right? So it's one of like my fundamental things that i like to fight for, again, to go back to the theme of injustice is the fact that geography shouldn't indicate or determine the quality of your education or your access to high quality education. Um, And so I think a lot of times that gets talked about urban, right? Like that, but I think it's more pronounced rural having worked both. And I think there's many, many things that make urban incredibly difficult and tough, but I don't think access to high quality necessarily is wonderful. I I shouldn't say that, as pronounced as it is in rural. So like for us, um, right before the school year, we lost our physics teacher. Like it's like impossible (laughs) to find one, right? Um, And so we were able to like create a very unique partnership with a neighboring district where we shared theirs in order to give our kids access um, but if we weren't kind of thinking outside of the typical, you know, box that serves education, our kids would just lose access to that, which is dramatically different than many other places of means and um, that create different opportunities for kids. And so for us, as you know, I kind of explore these things and as a kid, try to give students as much voice as they can into what they want. It's never what they want. It's what they want and then are willing to give up. Right. Like, so it's almost like doing your household budget, right? Like, I would love to do this. Great. But that if we don't change the the revenue, then the out. So then we just have to change how we're spending it. Um, And so for us, like, like one of the things that comes up a lot, which is family consumer science, it's that our kids want it. And I always say, like, if we are going to do it, I'm fine if we do it well, like if we lead to a culinary arts program or due to a child care certificate, like if we go somewhere with which not having these random electives. But then my follow-up question is great. So are we getting rid of egg? Are we getting rid of industrial arts? Are we getting rid of business? Are we getting rid of graphics? Which one do you want to get rid of? And like, we don't want to get rid of any of them. I'm like, okay, well, me either. I'm like, so this is this is the this is the rub, right? Is for us to to figure that out. And that is again just fundamentally different from district to district, state to state, region to region. Um, And I think that's part of what ails public education, right, is that the fact that kids in our zip code 61084 have a different opportunity than kids that are 40 miles east of them, um, despite the fact that we've worked our butts off to try to provide more opportunity.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So many directions we could go with this. I I love the student exit interviews. Like, I, I think that's, that's a brilliant idea to just like get and the fact that you're taking action on them too. I just want to highlight that for listeners too, who are like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Like I'm going to survey students and see what they need. The, the key is the action because otherwise students are not going to take it seriously and they're going to like, right? Like share honestly. Um, but also I love that you're bringing students into the conversation of like, we have a finite amount of resources. Decisions have to be made. And so bringing them into those conversations, helping them see behind the curtain of how those decisions are made and, and bringing them into making the actual decision is like a huge win for systemic, like student involvement in in, in, talk about civically engaged in their school communities. Like that's it. Right. And I think from, from my perspective, just as a, I was a student of a very rural district And then as a teacher, I was in a very urban district. So it was like upstate New York to New York City, kind of like Mm -hmm. differences. Um, So I'm totally hearing also what you're saying about like the unique challenges of that. And One of the things I learned from my research and surveying a lot of students from a a very rural district was that there was this um, lack of like voicelessness uh, and this idea of like, I remember some of the comments were like, why did my, why did my family move me here? Or something like that, where it was just like, I feel completely divorced from all decisions being made about my life. And so I'm wondering, have you seen any teachers in, in their curriculum or um, departments who have kind of tackled that voicelessness feeling or tried to address in like how they've designed instruction, like to amplify that and give them a sense of that bigger voice?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we have a handful of teachers that do an amazing job of that. And I think systemically we're trying to become more, um, I think a row rounder would be the, the word that we typically use because we don't see a ton of diversity um, in our in our district. We try to meet it where we, we can, but we just, there's not a ton of it. Um, doesn't mean there isn't it. I just want to be clear, but it's not an overwhelming. I would say the thing that has had the most profound impact is uh, one of the things that we found is that, you know, like, you know, the. I don't know, I forget what the title of the association is, but essentially the National Association for School Counselors. So whatever the acronym you know of that is, um, they have a recommendation of how many students per counselor, and so we work hard to, to meet that. But what we found is even in doing that, the majority of those school counselors' work isn't in the college and career prep area; it's just in social emotional and dealing with crises. Um, so we added a department for college and career readiness, and in making sure that we had individual people set up for internships, externships, um, to get kids to school visits, to have people come into us. Because again, um, it's kind of bang for your buck, right? Like if you're a university, you're gonna go to a school that has a thousand potential seniors, as opposed to one that is 110. Um, So we're kind of fighting for that and getting the people into our buildings. And in doing that, I think we've given our, our kids just a, a glimpse as to what is possible, right? Like, so that's the, the avenue that, that I like, and in, in, in the exit interviews, that's kind of what they said, it's like, that was the best decision you ever made. Um, and a lot of them were like, we had no idea why you were doing it, just felt like you're just adding another, you know, kind of pseudo administrator until, and then, and now, you know, we have somewhere to go to help with our essays, someone that hounds us down for scholarships, someone that, like, and all of those things that in your head, like a school counselor could do, but like anyone that's been in a school in the last five years, like our school counselors are plenty busy with stuff other than that. Um, And so that taking that, so that has given, I think our students, they've, I think agency, right? Like, so I don't know if voice is the right word or whatever, but I think it's given them agency in their future because they have somebody outside of their parents Um, outside of a singular teacher that is hounding them about what is their tomorrow, right? Like whatever your tomorrow is, is fine. I can find you an externship at a dairy farm. I can get you in at a nuclear physicist place, um, an aerospace place, or we can just think about getting you into, you know, teacher prep stuff. Like whatever it is, that's our job to figure that out and to help plan it with you. So I think that our kids have much more agency in their future right now than they had five years ago. I don't know that they would tell you they have more voice, right? Like I, I think they see those two things as different. Um, and that, and they may be right in seeing it different, right? Like, I think that they feel like they have voice on less consequential organizational decisions, um, like water fountains, right? Like, um, but I think that they feel like they have more agency in their own future than they did five years ago.
0: Hey everybody, it's Lindsay. Just just popping in here quick to tell you that at lindsaybethlions.com slash blog slash one, 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 you'll find the freebie for this episode, which is Dr. Kwezi's amazing Ted talk. You gotta listen to it, everybody. Back to the conversation. That's a super interesting distinction too, because I've never he- I've never heard of it broken down in that way. But that's absolutely like they're are different and equally important components. So that's super helpful to like s- to see that breakdown. I'm c- I'm curious too. Like you mentioned the lack of diversity. I imagine like racial, religious, like all the diversities <laughs> that you, that you could typically imagine in small rural communities. But I'll, I'll let you respond.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I'd say that you know, I mean, I would just think that the majority of studies would show that you know in terms of lgbtq stuff like that's pretty evenly spread right like so i think we have an equal distribution of that Um, outside of that we're about 90 percent white um with the majority of the 10 percent being our um, esl uh hispanic latino students Um, and then we just have uh, a small handful of uh, african-american students
0: OK, that's really helpful to know. I, I was just thinking about like, yeah, so so then linguistically, to an extent, racially, religiously, probably, um, you know, like how how do you feel like your your teachers have been or your departments have been having conversations about like the mirrors in a curriculum or or bringing current events around religious, uh, linguistic, racial injustices or justice to the table for your predominantly white students? Because I know that just being a student in one of those schools um, was something that just, wasn't just touched on very much.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I would say I would say it's really different K-12. Um, and I would say that our K-5 teachers are much more open. Um, I shouldn't say that. It's not our teachers. I'd say our K-5 teachers are less fearful. So I, I think our community is perceived, and I don't even know if it's accurate, Right, like in terms of its unwillingness to engage in these types of conversations. Um, Meaning when we have, I think there's a large difference in how we react collectively to individual students who um, are open about whatever their sexuality or I think we react much differently to a kid than we do the concept. As a as a community, Um, because then when it's a kid, so then just do what you need to do for the kid and whatever. But when it's conceptual, it's this like, well, why would we do that, right? Like, so it's when it's humanized. I think our community has been pretty awesome, Um, especially for small town Christian conservative, um, you know, uh, area. That doesn't mean that when we tiptoe into those areas that we aren't (laughs) tiptoeing, right? Like, like. People aren't taking a, a jump into it ever. Now that said, um, like our probably most revered teacher at the high school level is social studies. And he can talk about anything he wants to because he's been there forever and people understand and respect and, and kind of get who he is. So um, he is able to bridge lots of um, different areas and he's our sociology teacher. So it kind of lends naturally to some of that curriculum. So um, there's like some natural benefits in that. And then in terms of like selecting books or curriculum materials that where kids are feeling more represented, um, like, again, no one has a problem with that, right? Like, it's just, um, it, so like, I it's a very interesting, it's just a tiptoe. Like, it's a, it's, it's a, like, um, but it hasn't been, um, like, when we talk about openly trying to do DEI work, there's resistance uh, I mean, there, there just is resistance. There's no other way to say it. But when I talk about gatekeeper policies that accentuate gaps, people are fine with me trying to fix them. right? So it's it's one or the other, right? So um, it's been an interesting way to try to figure out how to get things done because there's then as the leader, it becomes a two-part conversation. I can get things done by calling it gatekeeper. I can get things done by saying that we have some gaps we need to close, but I also then am not calling out the the elephant in the room, and so it becomes this kind of a two front war in a way of like, hey, we got to get these things done, but at some point we have to have the conversation too, right? Because what my senior exit interviews would tell me is that uh, many times our students of color, in particular, feel that they have a different existence than our students that aren't, right? Like, and um, a lot of times they won't say it's terrible, it's not horrible, it's not, they're not going through, like we're not gonna be on the news, right? But it's different. And so therefore, to me, like we should have a moral and ethical imperative to potentially act on that. Um, And But different isn't enough to necessarily cue different things, right? Like now, if it's a a policy thing that I can fix or recommend, then that's different. Um, So it's just this really interesting dance.
0: Yeah, super, super interesting. All of the, the different kind of like categories of the, the <laughs> idea of like the language piece and like, you know, we, we're going to try to get things done that we can by just shifting the language and getting the buy in that way. And then there's also the that idea of difference of, of all the pieces that make up that feeling right of difference. So probably policies are like an an element. Like like you said, you have a bit more control over so you can kind of adjust those. But then like, do I see myself in the curriculum? Are we talking about the things that are current events that are important to me, right? Are my peers talking about those things? Like, are they not talking about them? Because they don't have an opportunity to talk about them in the curriculum. Like there's so many different pieces. And then there's just the matter of like, when I look around, who do I see? And as a function of being the community that it is with the demographics that it is, it's like, okay, well, that's also influencing, you know, my experience. So I think there are some things that we have more control over and some things we have less control over. I th-
1: yeah. And I yeah. think one of the things that from the superintendent lens that isn't talked about enough is how um, I think our country is as divided politically as it's ever been. right like, I think that, or at least in my lifetime, right. I can't say it's ever been. Um, like we forget that that's our school too. Like our, so not just like, and I'm not talking about the kids in the community, I'm talking about our staff, right? I mean, the day after election day was the the last two presidential election days were like days of mourning for half of our staff, just a different half each time, right? Like, and so like, that's a massive issue. Like when you're sitting across a PLC from somebody that you wear your political ideology very strongly and they wear theirs. And now all of a sudden the conversation is different. You're not talking about calculus, right? Like, or you are, but you're in the back of your mind thinking, one way or the other about this other person, like that, that's been a real challenge as well.
0: That is, a, wow, I'm so glad you brought that up. Because that is a huge challenge that I think many districts are facing, particularly mm. in with similar like geographies to what you're describing and, and demographics to what you're describing, psychographics to what you're describing. That is is, I'm curious to know, like, as a leader, are, are you What feels like a step that you wish that you could take that, that maybe feels like you're in the kind of tiptoe space that you described that like, it would be really cool if we could do this thing as a staff to be able to address this. Like, are there some like possibilities you've dreamt up of like, oh, I'd love to try this, but I'm not sure about this kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Well, so I think that, and this might be Pollyanna, but I still think that there's more unites us than divides us. But in order to have that conversation, you have to have the conversation. (laughs) <laughs> right. And so that conversation is probably not a 40-minute conversation. Right. So then it becomes, hey, we've got four PD days a year. Are we going to have one day where we just rip off the scab and get to it? Um and maybe open up this gaping wound instead of resolve it. Or like, so it's it's not like there's this thing that I want to do that I feel like I can't do. I think my board would be supportive. And I think my community would probably shake their head at me and roll their eyes, but trust me in, in letting me do it. Um but again, it's like I don't know that six hours is going to make it better, right? Like, so it's one of those things where then it's like, and then the return on investment. Like, we're doing well as a district, and I'm proud of it, and I can talk about our accomplishments. But like, we've got a long way to go too. So it's always like, it's not like, hey, we're going to spend this time because we just have nothing to do, right? Like, we've still got plenty of other stuff to do. My dog's about to lose her mind because the the mail lady is coming up. So I apologize if you hear. If you no hear worries, I hear that. Okay.
0: <sighs> I have a dog that does the same thing mortal enemies.
1: Yes. All right. I think we're, I think we're past it.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think that's absolutely. I, I love um, the, you know, that framing. I love that idea of like, it is something that you don't want to just dive into and then open the gaping wounds with no plan moving forward. Right. You have to kind of like make it a priority and like, it has to be this like long-term thing. And then people also need to, like you were saying, you have the buy-in from the board and there's kind of the eye rolling, like navigate that piece of this is a commitment we are committed to this it's going to serve all of our students and it's also going to be really hard (laughs) like it's going to be hard work
1: (laughs) well and the the other part of it is like and i so we outsource much of our pd but i am i feel very like what i i go travel and do pd all the time right so i do culture stuff i do evaluation stuff i do social media like you name it all right i've done the pd on it this is not it for me right like so i i i can i am not qualified i don't i'm going to go into a teaching strategy here but like the people that i have found that are the very best at socratic seminar right which is an old school but everyone still reveres it are the people that have enough confidence and swagger about their content knowledge that they know no matter how far off the conversation goes that they can ask the two questions to get it back and about everything in PD, I kind of feel that way. I don't necessarily feel that way if we get off on a, on a DEI or a social justice issue that I can do that. Um, and so therefore, it makes it even scarier to, to touch.
0: Yeah, and thank you, thank you for saying that, because I think a lot of listeners are probably in the same exact kind of experience where they're like, I know this is important. I know these are the things that would take. It would take a lot of time. It would take a lot, you know. And like, I'm not quite sure like that I'm the person to lead that conversation, you know? So I I think that that's just like huge for people to hear that, like, it's okay to be in that space, you know? And so I just appreciate your, your honesty there. That's really awesome.
1: Well, and the other thing is like, just like everything in education, whenever it becomes the trendy PD thing, the market then becomes flooded with people that are now experts on it. And then it becomes really hard to sort, siphon through and be like, okay, who is actually the expert, and then I think with DEI stuff and, and social justice stuff in particular, it's not just who is the expert, but who is the expert that could work given my unique context? Um, because like, I'll just say one of my favorite presenters in the area is Sonia Whitaker. So just, I don't know if I'm allowed to give her a shot up. I'm going to, and I adore her. And I think she's brilliant. Could not work in my district, She just couldn't, right? Like, so like knowing the presenters and knowing who they are knowing your district, I think is really important in that thing too.
0: Yeah. Such important advice. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And I, I realize we're kind of closing in on the 30 minute mark here, so I w I won't take up too much of your time, but I'm curious as like a kind of wrap up, we talked about a lot of different things and we went, I think towards a different path than I typically ask guests, which is super cool. But as people are kind of like stopping the, the episode and going about their day in leadership, or even a teacher listening in, in their classrooms, what would you advise them to like, think about, to, to do next, to maybe get the ball moving, a, a mindset shift, and action stuff they could take um, as they end the episode?
1: And so for me, the, the thing which changed my behavior, right? So like, I, I don't know that my beliefs or ideology have shifted in the last decade. Like, I think I've believed what I've believed, but the thing that made me take action was when I finally talked to students and they expressed to me that they had a fundamentally different experience. Now, fundamentally different experience is my words because that means I had to talk to other students to understand their experience, right? But when you have students come across and say like, you know, in junior high, kids start saying inappropriate things to students of color, okay? And so I'm like, all right, well, did you let the, the school know? Well, yeah, what did the school do? They reacted, they did everything it says in the discipline code. Okay, good, so we're not ignoring it. What happens? It gets worse. Okay, so then what happens? We'd say again, then they get punished again then we realize it's just easier not to say anything. So almost by proxy, then we we're creating, you know, like if we say, to go back to the beginning of the episode and talk about like, we want kids to be community contributors. If by our action or inaction, we're creating kids that are like silenced and almost disenfranchised in their schooling experience. Cause it's just easier to keep your head down and keep moving. To me, as an educator, when you hear that, that gives you the moral imperative to act. And so if you are like, if you are listening to this, like, yeah, but or maybe not here, or it doesn't seem like that for then maybe it's not like awesome, but maybe it is. And so if, if I were you, I'd just say, like, hey, just talk to kids and and figure out what their experience is. And if it's fundamentally different, then we, we have to act. And like the way that I would say, like, our kids would describe their fundamental differences like there are teachable moments where they find that some of the adults in the room are selectively deaf. And then they'll tell me that those same adults go bend over backwards to support them and do everything they can. But when in those, so they, they don't think those adults are racist or malintentioned, but when there's that moment, they tend to back away from it. And so for me, that's the thing. It's like, how do we get those adults to, to understand they can intervene in that moment in a community like ours and still be protected, supported, and still move kids forward in the right direction. Like that's where that rub is. And I think that's probably where a lot of teachers are right now. It's like, yeah, I know. And I love these kids and I'm doing what I can for them. But in that moment, do you know who that person's dad is? And if I correct that, then what's this going and there's all this calculus going on in their head. And at some point we just have to be ready to have that conversation
0: so powerful. And I, and actually, I'll just make a quick connection to I just a couple hours ago interviewed Dr. Neil Gupta, who told me that uh, one of his students in this pivotal like conversation where they were asking students there for feedback, uh, he, she was like, we need more conversations in the classroom about issues that are important to us. And he had said something, this was years ago, like, you know, well, our teachers don't have the training necessarily to feel comfortable responding always in the moment. And she said, Neil, you need to train your teachers. <laughs> <laughs> highlighting just like the relationship, like you, you mentioned a lot throughout this episode, I think the trust and the relationship that enables you and and the community to like do work or, or work with students that may have had these like difficult experiences, but like that trust is so foundational to any sort of change that we can make. And and just that use of the first name to like an administrator and to say it so directly, like that trust was foundational to being able to invite that student honesty, I think, which is really critical as well.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so amazing. I have loved this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. I usually ask two final questions just as a, as a quick wrap up. The first one is for fun. So everyone who comes on the podcast usually identifies as a lifelong learner. They're constantly learning something new. It could be anything from like piano to a new book you read. What is something that you have been learning about lately?
1: So I reject the term lifelong learner. Not that okay. I, so I like, so here's the deal. Um, I prefer unfinished. Just simply be like-, it. like I feel like a lot of people continue to say they are learning, but then they're not acting on it. I think unfinished means that you still have to continue to act. So um, that would be, I guess, that. Uh, One of the things that I am trying to do is so this um, and learn right now is I have um, never in my life marketed myself. So like, I feel like I've done a really good job and a lot of the recognition our district gets is because I've branded and marketed the district, which I have zero problems about. I'll make a zillion calls for that. But if it's about me, It is terrifying. Um, And because especially everyone in the space that I typically market to are peers as well, I think it makes it even worse. Um, So that is kind of the New Year's resolution for me, um, which I don't really love New Year's resolutions either, but like, it's like, I'm going to try to reach out and market myself in a more strategic manner and learn how to do it um, in a way that uh, forces me into being uncomfortable um, just to see, Again, like it's been a really good year for me accolades and recognition wise, I'm trying to parlay that and to see where it goes. Um, and so trying to, to figure out how to do that has, has been interesting.
0: So I love that that's what you said because I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that now if you're comfortable <laughs> or maybe even if you're uncomfortable it, to say like, what can listeners, like first, how do they connect with you? But like, if a listener is like, oh, wow, this guy sounds awesome. I really wanna invite him to do a keynote or whatever. Like, what are some of the things that you want people to know? About you and the things you do and and how they can reach out.
1: Sure. Um, so I you can connect me on uh, pretty much every social media at M C U S D soup. I'm an S U P E soup guy, not an S U P T. Um, but even my name's pretty unique. So even if you just Google my name, it comes up everywhere. Um, and my website's pretty comprehensive in in terms of what it looks like in terms of like things that I, I do outside of the typical, you know, nine to five, which is really more like, like six to six, um, (laughs) job. Um, I always laugh. I got like four or five full-time jobs. So um, I, I have eight books out in the last 10 years and I've got three more coming out this year. So it'll be 11, in 11 years, I think at the end of, of this year. So, so look for those. I'm really excited about, like, I like all the books that I've written, but, um, have one coming out that is intended for high school athletic coaches. I think there's a really unique space where if you talk to a bunch of kids, like obviously the theme of this conversation has been, they'll tell you, a lot of them will tell you that the most impactful person they've had in their educational career has been a coach. And that's not always a positive thing, right? Like it's not always like, oh my, it's like this person ruined my life or I used to love baseball and now I hate it. Um, And so we know this and then we pay them very little as a school system and give them no training. Be like, hey, good, you passed the background check, go. Um, Or like you played college baseball, so now you must know how to interact with 18 year olds, right? Like it doesn't work that way. Um, So I think it's unique in that space. So I'm excited about that. Um, I coach a lot of people like from the executive leadership coaching, both inside education and outside education. Um, I think coaching is much different than mentoring. So people will be like, how do you coach CEOs? Because I can help them learn about themselves and leadership is leadership. Um, and so that, that is probably my favorite thing that I do. Um, I teach at a handful of universities. Um, we're in a Columbia shirt now. So um, that's, that's one of them. And then the speaking keynoting and consulting thing is, is very interesting, right? Because, um, there's no feeling like getting a standing ovation after a Keto, like that's the best feeling in the world and do it and it's great and travel and do all those things. Um, but I like consulting way more. Um, so two of the things that I come in and do is kind of this unique um, culture assessment that I've worked up and kind of go through and, and give people real feedback as to what their culture is. Cause I think far, 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 far too often people think climate is culture to dramatically different things. So right now, I don't know when this is gonna air uh, but say it airs in February. Um, that's when everyone says their culture dips, your culture doesn't dip, your climate dips, your culture's like cement, it's really hard to change. Um, and so to get in and actually do a culture assessment is, is a unique thing. Um, and then the second one is uh, evaluation to me is the lowest return on investment Um, thing we do in education. We spend thousands of hours in almost every district on it every year. Everyone you would talk to says it actually is a negative ROI, doesn't improve teaching practices, decreases climate. Um, And so I go in and and help to reformat and re-envision that process um, for people agnostic of tool, whether you're Marzano, Marshall, Danielson, whatever.
0: Amazing. Wow. That was so great. I'm really glad that you did that because I think a lot of people will reach out after this. So I hope that's okay with you with your four jobs. (laughs) thank you so much, PJ, for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time.
1: It was awesome. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: If you're leaving this episode wanting more, you're going to love my live coaching intensive curriculum bootcamp. I help one department or grade team create feminist, anti-racist curricula that challenges, affirms, and inspires all students. We weave current events into course content and amplify student voices, which skyrockets engagement and academic achievement. It energizes educators feeling burnt out, and it's just two days. Plus, you can reuse the same process anytime you create a new unit, which saves time and money. If you can't wait to bring this to your staff, I'm inviting you to sign up for a 20-minute call with me. Grab a spot on my calendar at www.lindsaybethlyons.com contact. Until next time, leaders, continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at teachbetter.com slash podcasts, and we'll see you at the next episode.